Welcome to Zero to a Million, where we interview multimillionaires on how they scaled their business to $500 million. Uh, 10 years ago? Nah, there are plenty of those types of podcasts out there. We want to provide you with strategies real time while we scale Unstack from zero to a million. Every week, you can learn from our successes and failures. Plus, get tips from our mentors and advisors. While we implement, you learn. While we learn, we scale. Welcome to the Zero to a Million podcast. Welcome to this week's episode of Zero to a Million brought to you by Unstack. I'm your host, Zach Rigo, and today we'll be talking pricing and monetization strategies with Patrick Campbell, founder and CEO of ProfitWell, a company putting the revenue into subscription and SaaS revenue operations. Patrick, I'm really excited about this because it's something uh, Grant and I have spent more time than I'd like to admit talking about, which you probably love to hear because that means there's a problem or a need. Uh, but thank you for joining me. I'm excited to get our listeners a little bit of your insight. Yeah, awesome to be here. Yeah. So uh, before we jump in, uh, I'd love a little bit of the background story, how you ended up kind of building this business and and really trying to uh, systemize what people are thinking about when they're implementing a pricing strategy. Yeah, totally. So I uh, definitely didn't dream of working in pricing and analytics and retention and SaaS, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I... Uh, yeah. So I... Um, that's actually a good question. I, so I grew up in a very blue collar family, um, kind of the first kid to go to college type thing. And, um, I, it, I, I think when you're in that kind of household, you tend to go into being like a doctor or a lawyer, right? Like that's the next step, you know, in, in generational, you know, kind of growth. Um, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a cardiovascular surgeon when I was a kid. Right. Um, you know, I think it was more just like I, I learned a big word when I was, you know, in, in kindergarten. So that's how I was like, oh, I'm going to say this big word. But um, I didn't like blood. I found that out, thankfully, before trying to go to school for it. <laughs> And then uh, in college, I, I kind of was like, oh, I'm going to go save the world. My dad's in the military. And so um, it was one of those things where um, I couldn't get into the military because I don't have a sense of smell. Um, I was born with that one. And I, I probably could have figured out how to get in the military. But that was enough to be like, ah, I just maybe this isn't actually for me. Um, and so I, I did a lot of interning and stuff in DC. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go be a lawyer. Well, the year I was about to graduate college, there were like 20% more law school graduates than actual law jobs. Um, and so I was like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. And so I, I ended up getting, based on some of my internships in DC and college, um, I got recruited to go work in the Intel community. Um, huh. So in US intelligence. And so uh, it sounds so much cooler yeah. than it might actually be. <laughs> um, I actually worked, I went and worked at, at, at NSA, um, basically. And it was... Um, it was probably one of the most fulfilling jobs I've ever had and ever will have. Um, and that says a lot, um, considering I, you know, founded and run a company. Um, but it was just one of those jobs where, you know, you were, you were actually, uh, the work you were doing either directly or indirectly was like saving lives, which was kind of wild, yeah. right? You're either hunting bad guys or bad girl, gals down. Uh, you were trying to, you know, hunt down, um, you know, someone who was kidnapped. Like there, there's just a lot of crazy cool stuff that you got to, to, to see into, um, and, um, I learned, I learned how to think there, which is kind of cool that plus I went to the university, I went to on a debate scholarship. So those two things really like taught me like a good amount of analytical skills. And, um, I, the, to make a longer story short here, 
being a young punk, ambitious kid and working for the U.S. government doesn't really go together. Um, you know, I was I was like wanting to go faster and like my learning curve. I wanted it to be faster, and it just wasn't going to happen. So I thought, oh, Google, this thirty thousand person company that that it's a tech company, so yeah, it won't be bureaucratic. So I ended up going. <laughs> Yeah, I ended up going there and I, I, I moved to Boston to work there. Um, I did uh, sales and then sales operations, like doing value modeling. So it's actually very similar to the work I did in the US Intel community where I was doing, um, you know, basically putting numbers together and, and for some sort of outcome. The outcome was very yeah. different. I was, you know, hunting money rather than, you know, bad guy or bad gal. And so, uh, yeah, long story short, I, I then was, you know, oh, this is very bureaucratic as well. You can't like move jobs for two years, no matter how good you are, all this other crazy stuff. Um, and so I jumped into a venture back startup in Boston uh, that did customizable jewelry. So kind of like a Blue Nile competitor. Yeah. Um, Jim Vara, if you're familiar, I know you've been around yeah, the game. Familiar a with them, yeah. um, and uh, hated that. Uh, so you're seeing a trend here. Uh, I was there for about nine months. It wasn't, the product was cool. The people were great. It's just, the culture was very political and it was kind of, I always, I, I said it's, it's, you know, it was a 90 person company run like it's 300, yeah. you know, it's just kind of like, it felt disconnected. Um, and I don't, I, you know, I don't think it was anyone's specific fault. It just wasn't for me. And then, so I, I jumped out and I, one project I did there is I worked on pricing and I kind of put two or three things together where they gave it to um, kind of an entry level plus kid. You know, I wasn't that far into my career. Um, which means they they didn't prioritize it as much, um, but it was something that was super important based on how much impact it would have when we would make some changes. Yeah. And no one knew anything about it. Like I, within like a week, was an expert compared to them in terms of pricing the people I was working with. So it was just it was one of those things where I was like, ah, eh, like if I'm going to do something, I might as well do it myself. And I was in my 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 early twenties, and I was like, all right, screw it, let's go. Um, and so I jumped out and. Um, then started working in a room for 18 hours a day, just banging my head against the wall, trying to like make something work. Um, and, you know, fast forward, you know, seven years later, I am, uh, you know, we're 70 people bootstrapped over 10 million in annual revenue and uh, yeah, cranking from there. That's awesome. So a lot of our listeners are probably in the room right now for yeah. 18 hours, banging their head against the wall. Any <laughs> Make sure you shower. That's yeah. what I would say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, man, any any uh, any kind of initial things that you like struggled through there? I, I mean, I, you know, just yeah, you know, what were you? How were you crafting this product? Was it a service at the time? And like, what were you? What were you kind of going through to get to where you are today? Yeah, well, there's two things that are more um, just given the audience. I, I, I'd want to say, and then I'll answer that. So, two things that were struggling that I think are really important for like early stage folks, um, or when you're kind of in that early stage in the room. Uh, one figure out what you want. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, um, do you want to be 18 hours in that room? Like, is that what you want? Is it something where you want to, to create something that gets you to the point where you're only working 20 hours a week and making good money, right? Neither of those paths are better than the other. But I think that's the biggest thing because I, I really struggled with that in the early days where um, I really wanted the 18 hours. And that's how my life is now. I don't work 18 hours a day anymore, um, or at least not that much. But it's one of those things where um, that was really important because once I figured that out, like I ended up really choosing my friends. I ended up like making sure I was in the right relationships, like all these other things. And I think that once I did that, it actually made my life working those 18 hours so much easier. Um, so that's a really big thing. The other thing there too is um, 
I, I also think that you need to really, really kind of scrutinize um, how you get advice and how you iterate. There's this whole concept of, you know, obviously like wisdom has to be learned. It can't be taught, right? And it's so true because the number of things I was told in the early days that it's not necessarily that I didn't believe, but I just, I was like, oh, that's not important to me right now. But then like a year later, I was like, oh no, that was important, right? And that wasn't, it wasn't an arrogance thing. Like, you know, if, if you've been doing this three months, even you get kicked in the teeth enough that your arrogance goes out the window, right? And so I think that's a really big thing is like, how do you shorten those paths to learning? And, and, and that's where thankfully I kind of lucked into it based on your question. Um, we basically, or I, I, I say we now, but like I had a, uh, a, a pure software products for pricing. Um, it was this little tool that you could like send surveys with and the algorithm was baked in and then you could get the output for learning about willingness to pay and stuff like that. Um, I was trying to sell it ironically for like 50 bucks a month. Um, and very quickly learned that um, people would, would get on the phone with me in like a sales capacity, like trying to learn. And they would basically say, yeah, this is really good. I, I really like the, the end point. I don't want to do anything to get the end point. And oh, by right. the way, can you come like give us context and talk to us? Because pricing was one of those things that it's at the intersection of uncomfortable and important. So like everyone's a little squirrely. They don't have a lot of context. They, they want someone to, you know, kind of tell them what to do, if not um, someone they can blame if something goes wrong. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, I went, oh, it's, it's services. Ugh, you know, VCs, they don't like services and we're not venture backed, but I was like, oh, it's services. Ah, ah, right. And then I was like, what the hell am I doing? Like, they want to pay me five grand for like a week's worth of work. Like, I'm an idiot, right? At least the yeah. least I can do is do this. And, and all of a sudden it kind of morphed into, oh, let's get paid to do our customer development, right? And that was a huge, huge thing. And that's what allowed us to bootstrap. Um, we don't, we're not religious about bootstrapping, but allowed us to. And then over time it was like, oh, wait, this is actually the right model. So we moved that kind of, it's called a tech-enabled service where yeah. We've developed our software, and but our software is only used by us. The output goes to the customer, but it's one of those things where we add it with, with service. And what's kind of cool is our margins are better than most software companies. Um, right. And so it's one of those things where, you know, just because you had a human, it's not a bad thing. You can actually get better retention, much better like LTV because you could charge a hell of a lot more because you have the perception of a human while still kind of controlling for your cost. So that's kind of what it morphed into very quickly within the first 18 months. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of bumps in there, but yeah, that's that's how I think about the first few months. You're, to, you're starting to see a lot of companies. I mean, obviously, agencies are starting to adopt that model right through through tech partnerships, which they have yeah. to do because they can't scale. They can't add a client or add ten clients and add headcount every time they do. It just doesn't. The math doesn't work. Um, so you're starting to see that happen. You're starting to see other companies like Gravy, you know, do it with with churn and retention, where they're trying to layer that that piece of of services on top of the, the software. Yeah. So. I, I love what you, what you guys have done. And I love, uh, obviously, your insights. And right. And, and I think it's funny, you mentioned like, hey, we're gonna charge 50 bucks a month for this SaaS product. And you would not, you would not probably tell the people you're advising to charge that amount. Uh, let, let's dig in a little bit into how you start to develop products. So when you sit down with a client, like, when a SaaS company starting to think about their pricing, whether they have one a model today or not, uh, what are some key factors they should be really thinking about before they even put, you know, pen to paper on what those dollar amounts are going to be? Well, I think the first thing, and it's kind of funny you bring up Gravy, because they're a straight up competitor to our one of our products. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. I no, it's totally fine. That. It's totally fine you brought no. them up. But um, <laughs> so this this actually is a really good example. So, and, and you know, I'm also bringing that up because I'm probably clearly biased, but I'm going to try to speak as objectively as possible. I think that the, <laughs> the first thing you have to think about 
is what is that North Star of what you're trying to solve, right? And so with Gravy, as well as our Profile Retain product, we're trying to solve um, delinquent churn and in some cases active churn, right? Delinquent churn is credit card failures, right? Now, what you want to do then is kind of take a step back and you want to think about, okay, who's that target customer you're going after? So we go after typically um, high velocity uh, subscription businesses. So basically people charging less than 500 bucks a month, 1,000 bucks a month and um, you know down um, who have lots of customers, right? Gravy's kind of going after folks who want a little bit more high touch, right? And the reason I think it's important to understand that customer is then you have to also understand is like, What's the like penultimate product that you're going after? What's that product that you're really trying to think through? Because I think then what ends up happening is, is that when you look at something like uh, Retain, our product, we basically said, we're going to go after these high velocity folks and we're going to work backwards from there. And we know this product is going to look like X one day, but right now it's okay if it looks like Y. And that allows you to kind of figure out your pricing and how you're going to go after it. And Gravy kind of chose, chose a different path. Um, and that kind of has caused them to have to charge different amounts, right? And I think that that's what's so crucial is who is your customer? What is the, what is the value you're trying to get after? And what is the value and how are you going to deliver that value in 18 months, right? And it's just a thought exercise. You can collect data on it. You can do a bunch of different things, but it's a thought exercise because even for a pricing product, we were basically like, hey, um, this should eventually be a product like Retain, um, or at the time we didn't have Retain, but a product that is, you know, you plug it in and it does something for you, right? But then when we work backwards, we're like, the market's not ready for that in pricing. We're not ready for it. So we can like connect with service and a bunch of other things to kind of grow right. that product into place. Other times it's going to be an MVP and like kind of the traditional product path. But that's like the first thing is just to make sure you do that thought exercise. Because what that thought exercise does is it gives you... It gives you basically a um, like a constitution to debate internally. Like it gives you this like, hey, we can debate what's going on, um, and we can essentially like figure out like, oh, I thought we were going after this customer. That feature you're requesting seems to be going after that customer. And even if you change and you reevaluate, you have that central point of like, this is where we're going after. This is what we're trying to solve, and this is how we think we're going to go about doing it. Are we? Do we need to revisit that central place or? Are we just are we just going to keep going and let's be aggressive towards like keep going and the reason for this is because there's so many decisions like early on so many and it's just one of those things you want something that's central that you can argue so you don't have like crappy arguments with yourself or with you know your co-founders hopefully as well um, yeah the other big piece and and the two other more tactical things uh, that was tactical but it's still a little bit more strategic to think through. One is how you charge. So what is your actual, it's called a value metric or a pricing metric. Um, that's super powerful just because you shouldn't be focused on like, what is my specific price point in the early days? Um, it, you can over-optimize there. And if you don't have a lot of customers, it's not going to do much for you. Um, but figuring out how you get that, how you charge, that ultimately is going to help the most because yeah, maybe you're not making as much money as you should per customer, but it's going to save you because as that usage goes up or as that value goes up, you're naturally going to pay more. Um, and as you kind of push things forward, it's going to allow you to kind of like have momentum built into your pricing. And then the final piece is what, what kind of price tranche are you in? So not like, are we $29 versus $30? But are we a $30 product? Are we a $100 product? Are we a $500 product? 
That's the more important question. And that's a little bit easier to find out too than worrying about, oh my gosh, you don't have perfect data to determine if we should be $19.99 or $20 and one cent, right? Which is like, you shouldn't worry about that until you're like years down the line, essentially. Right. So an interesting thing you mentioned, I, I struggle with this, right? As, as we start to look at how we want to modify our pricing is it's, it's so easy to be influenced by where the market has been historically. So some of your competitors or, or other players in the game, how much time do you spend early or later even, you know, starting to look at competitors and how they're either metering or if they're doing feature-based or, or things of that nature? Because it's so easy to get sucked into, you know, the things that have already been built as opposed to really thinking like, what's our value and how do I do something that's different but impactful and allows us to scale? The short, very generalized answer is you shouldn't focus on competitors, especially in the early days because, and, and there's some nuance here that I'll explain in a second, but like you're building something that you, you saw some hole in the market or some better way to do something. So you start iterating on it, right? Now, at some point, the competitive pressure is going to come to you. And when that competitive pressure comes to you, whether now nah, we're actually canceling and we're going to go work with this other company or now nah, we're, you know, I'm already using so-and-so for this. That's the point where you want to look into some competitive kind of analysis, but not before then. And it's a very subtle point because that might be like one month in, right? That might be three months in. Right. But even then, you want to make sure that that competitive context and data is very secondary, if not tertiary, to the primary user data that you're looking after. And if you take for like a CRM, for instance, let's say we're starting a CRM, um, we kind of know what we need. Like right? we know we need like some sort of database management. We're going to need a contact record. We know the basics, right? But the way you go about doing that should go from a very user-based kind of context and maybe you layer in like, oh, that was actually a really good feature that they did. That was an actually good feature they did. But the primary data has to become from you know, product vision that you have mixed in with that user feedback and not user feedback in the sense of you should never be like, hey, what do you want? Like customers are, that's not their job. And that's not the data you want. You want like, what do you struggle with? What do you hate about this? What do you love about this? Like get that type of information and then you filter that through and make decisions. Now, as you kind of grow up, if you're in an extremely competitive space, like you're in a CRM market or landing pages and things like that, um, you have to start kind of understanding who your competitors are. And on the marketing side, I'm a big fan of doing marketing-based competition when you start hearing about the competitors in the sales process or in the cancellation process. Um, that's the right time to do it. But still, from a product perspective, you want to be really careful with that. Um, just because you don't want to build kind of a Me Too product, or I guess that has very different connotation now. Um, you don't want to build like a copycat product. There we go. Um, you want to build something that like focuses in on how is the better way of doing this. And if you went back to right. one of the first things we talked about, if you have your North Star, that's going to help you kind of guide it. Um, so yeah, just some, just some, some ramblings there on competition. No, no, that's, that's super helpful. And it's, it's something that, uh, you know, even when I, and, and for a little bit of background, I, I met Patrick through, uh, you know, a mutual network and, and he did a presentation and it got a lot of gears turning and it led to some meetings and I got, a, you know, Grant and I talking and uh, all of these things have started to, you know, bubble to the top now. And we're starting to look at a bunch of different models. And, and I love the fact that you mentioned, like, go back to your North Star, like what, why did, 
why did Grant and Steve build this? Like, if we can just hang our hat on that and, and think about that every time we think about pricing, then I think it becomes really easy for us to figure out where our value is and where our differentiators are. Um, something something that I think is really important, and, and at, at our previous company uh, that I worked for, WordStream, we we struggled with this, is we updated pricing once a year. And... I thought that was good and and it worked and it was a lever, but we used it as a lever for sales. Like, hey, our pricing's changing next month. I don't think we used it appropriately. Um, how often should people update pricing? And uh, what are some of the outputs from doing that or, or even just reevaluate pricing? The first thing to think about is pricing and monetization is so much more than just the number. I think that's where a lot of people get this wrong is... They, they just think like it's, oh, raising prices or changing the actual number. There's a lot of other stuff. There's packaging, there's add-ons, there's localization when you're large enough. Um, or if you're early enough and selling internationally already, um, there's, there's all types of different things. And so the idea is, is that you have three main growth levers in your business, acquisition, monetization, retention. You're doing stuff with acquisition presumably all the time, right? New stuff every week, same stuff every week, more volume, all that kind of stuff, Right. You're probably not doing as much retention stuff as you should, but you're doing some of it because you're thinking about which features next, how do we do you know, a refresh, how do we speed the app up, these types of things, all those kind of influence um, retention. You're probably doing nothing when it comes to monetization, right? And the thing is, is that gains in monetization growth and in retention growth, they're definitely harder than the gains in acquisition growth. But what you should focus on is just getting some sort of momentum. There's something that you can do at least once a quarter and then as you get moving at least once a month that can help you bring in more revenue per customer. And that's the metric you should care about. How is our revenue per customer changing? But there's something you can do every quarter. And what I always recommend is in the early days, you have so many things going on. Your job with monetization is just to make sure that you don't forget about it. So you got payroll to worry about. You got like this newfangled thing you're working on. You got this other newfangled thing you're working on. All kinds of different stuff going on. Just make sure there's a calendar invite every quarter on your calendar for you and your co-founders, you and your pricing committee. Maybe that's like you and a marketer or something like that just to revisit. And even if you snooze that calendar invite each quarter, at least you're getting reminded of like, oh crap, yeah, that's right. We heard about this. We should test that thing. Or hey, we're doing a sales model now. Maybe we use those sales conversations to just anecdotally test out, you know, do new value metrics or a new price point or these types of things. Because that allows you to not get to like three, four years in and all of a sudden you've lost any compounding nature of monetization because you haven't done anything with your pricing. And, you know, pricing, not to get all poetic here, is, you know, it's the very essence of what you're doing. You're creating some sort of value and then ascribing some sort of dollar amount to it, right? If your product improves, your brand improves, your price should improve. And maybe that doesn't mean the number, but it does mean that something about it should should optimize and go forward. So when people are looking at pricing, go back to my WordStream days, because I spent a lot of exercises going through different pricing revamps. Have you ever just talk to somebody and been like, nope, like we gotta, we're not sitting within this framework anymore. We're tearing this thing down and going back. Cause I feel like when we were optimizing pricing, it was like always within the framework we already existed. And we did a couple, I did a couple of tests when I was GM of the agency business that were like bonkers off the wall, completely against everything we've ever done. Uh, they didn't pan out, but like I, I went and did it because it was just like, Hey, we got to do something new and let's put a team on this to test this model and see if we can accelerate sales velocity, lower churn, provide ourselves more upside. Didn't pan out, but that that's neither here nor there. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And like, where should people live when they're thinking about pricing? Like, do, they, do you ever just go crazy? 
so yeah, I mean, I, I think what's interesting about what you just said is uh, th- there's no, it's the only area with the exception, there's probably a couple exceptions. I haven't thought too much about it, but it's one of the only areas of a business where if it doesn't go perfect, you're not going to do anything, right? And it's never going to go perfect, right? It's never going to go perfectly. Like it's never like w- with pricing, it's like, it's optimization, just like everything else in your business. There's features you launch that aren't as successful as you thought. There's features you launch that are more successful than you thought. There's acquisition experiments that fail all the time, right? Depending on what you're trying to do, right? And so, yeah, you do have to experiment. Now, in terms of going crazy, I think, I think the thing to think about is when you take a huge step back and you put your product hat on um, or your kind of uh, overall strategic vision hat on, if you will, although that sounds very convoluted, um, if you put those hats on, you might be noticing, oh, like there's some weird stuff going on in the market. We're seeing these trends and these trends and these trends. And maybe that's going to affect how we charge, right? So the most dramatic is, oh, we're noticing that this space is just commoditizing down, right? It's just commoditizing down. Maybe we just go free, right? Maybe we just give away everything for free and then we monetize this other product, right? This is what you see with um, um, very large firms. Um, like LogMeIn has done this with a couple of their products where they're just like, yeah, we're gonna, we're basically going to not put anything into these products. And as soon as they reach this like cresting revenue, we're just gonna give it away for free because that's what it's worth to us at that point is just adoption and you know getting more of these types of customers. And so I think, yeah, there, there, there's a lot of things to look at and when you go a little crazy, it's, it's, it's actually easier once you've had some success because you can test it. You can test it with new customers, see what happens. You can have these conversations. It's really hard to go to your existing customer base and talk about something crazy because they're always going to say no because they're already anchored. Um, but it is one of those things. It doesn't mean that they won't accept it though. That's what's really interesting because if you go validate it with people who have never heard of you or your customers and they're like, yeah, this is great. This is amazing. I love this versus this other product I'm currently using, blah, 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 blah. It might be the best move. And then your customers are actually probably going to get back on board because they just don't want to change. And this goes back to, it's not about doing exactly what your customers want. It's about filtering all that data that comes in and then making the best decision. So, yeah. So you mentioned the customer piece there. When you implement a new pricing model, do you encourage your clients to change it for everybody? or change it for new customers only? Because we have had a long, long debates about this at, at WordStream. And, uh, and I'm interested to hear your perspective. Yeah. Um, in, again, in a very overly generalized answer, I am not a fan of um, keeping your current customers on their legacy pricing. Uh, so put another way, I think you should raise your prices on your existing customers. And the reason, there's there's really like a philosophical reason and a, a data reason. The data reason is um, it's really like cute and easy to do this when you're under a million up to maybe like seven to 10 million in annual revenue. And I know some people listening are like, ah, I'll worry about that at seven to 10 million. The, the problem is, is that if you don't produce that DNA, it's really, really hard to go from 10 to 100 without raising your prices in some way. And if all of a sudden you just start doing it at seven to 10, uh, you're probably going to really aggravate a customer base that hasn't been trained, if you will. And in addition to that, um, you're going to be skittish and you're going to be worried and all these other things. And you're probably going to make some poor decisions of under, under anxiety. And so that that's, you know, and the philosophical reason is, is your, you know, your, your values improved. You're providing more. 
Like you don't train your customers to get more for less, right? Um, yeah. Now, the, the more nuanced answer is if your TAM can support it, meaning you have a large enough logo TAM, meaning you can get tons of different customers and it doesn't really matter, you can continue to grow, um, you can at least have the opportunity to have that debate internally. If you have a low TAM, meaning your TAM is, you know, ours is like 100,000 subscription companies. There's not a lot of subscription companies out there. And that's, you know, SaaS, subscription e-commerce, media, et cetera. Our TAM requires that we're going to have to raise prices in some way. Now, the way we do that is we have a value metric, a very pure value metric where that I talked about before. So that naturally, as someone uses more, gets more value, they pay more. The other way we do it is we're selling multiple products. So it's a little bit easier to sell multiple products and all of a sudden our revenue per customer goes up. Um, if you're just one product and you have a low TAM, like you're going to have to raise prices in some way and it's the easiest way to do it is, hey, we provided a ton of value, your price is going up. Um, yeah. you know, and people get it. Um, now, there are some spaces, I don't know if WordStream is one of them, where customers are... I was just about to say terrible. No, I don't mean terrible. <laughs> where customers are... Um, Customers are very finicky. Yeah. And I still think you have to raise prices, but you have to do it. In, you always have to do it the right way. You just would be a little bit more sensitive with those types of customers. You're so right about creating the muscle memory with your, with your customers of like, a, they almost expect that like, yeah, on a yearly basis, we're revisiting this thing or on a, an X amount. And, and it just becomes something that they see the bill change. It's so easy to, if you see the same bill every month, like, and there's no change in it and, and you are extracting more value from it, then when you make that change, it will become a churn event. There's no doubt about it because it will be different. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I love that. And it's something that I think, you know, all of our listeners should be thinking about now and not waiting until you get to a million, two, three. Yeah. Also to give people confidence a little bit, when you lower prices, people churn. Like it's it, the thing you have to think about, no matter how you change price, there's always these things that are going to remind people they're buying something and they're going to have to rethink about it. Right. Yeah. And so it's like anything you do with pricing, not anything you do, but if you actually physically increase or change your price point, you're always going to see some churn, but more often than not what happens, your churn will go up a little bit. And those people were probably going to churn in the next month or so anyways. And then your churn rate actually goes down below where it was because you got some of those like not so great customers out of the funnel or out of the customer base. And then all of a sudden, you're, if you don't change anything about your funnel or about your product, yeah. your churn will basically just go right back up, um, which is a really fascinating phenomenon. And it'll, it'll basically normalize right where it was before. So it's, it's just a really interesting phenomenon. Yeah, I love that. You, you mentioned um, log me in as an example where, where they kind of, you know, hey, we're just, we're going to give this away for free. It's going to be a way, it, you know, usually a lead gen tool. I think, you know, join.me, I think about like, I used to use that and then I got into their funnel and then they were trying to sell me something else. And, you know, it's a decent model. Um, what are some other like really solid pricing examples that you're like, man, this is a good case study, whether it's been a customer of yours or not, where you've kind of been like, that's a really interesting strategy. That's, that's kind of the framework by which people should be looking to, to scale a SaaS business. Yeah. I think for a lot of SaaS businesses, the two models to look at are one Slack. Okay. So the, the the old school model that people uh, like to give advice around is like Salesforce. So Salesforce uh, CRM, for those of you who don't yeah. know, I'm talking specifically about their sales CRM. Their pricing page is so complicated. It basically has a uh, map, like it has a map. So you understand, like it's insane. But they've been around for you know 20 plus years. So that happens. Here's the thing. They have very what's called push pricing. 
And we use Salesforce. We are actually happy Salesforce customers. But the first time we used Salesforce, when we were probably a little early for it, um, the tier we bought, we were like, great, the HubSpot integration. The HubSpot integration is super important. That was the tier we bought. Well, you get the API for the HubSpot integration, but you don't get any API calls unless you're on the next tier. And for anyone who's even semi-technical, that makes zero sense. Like, there's no reason to have an API if, unless you have API calls, right? Yeah, you're building, a, you're building a road you can't drive on. Exactly. Like, that's actually great. I'm going to steal that because I always say yeah. this and I don't have a you're metaphor, but that's a perfect <laughs> metaphor. But like, and that's what pushing. They're just like, nope, you got to go up. You got to go up. And it's always like you're using only 30% of the features. And then all of a sudden, like, you want that one feature. And instead of just giving you that feature, they make you upgrade for another, you know, only 20% of features you're going to use and so on and so forth. It's old school. It works, especially if you have the best sales team in the world and a product that doesn't have like very stark competition quite yet. Although, you know, HubSpot and some others are making making that uh, hopefully not always going to be that way. Now, Slack, they're kind of new school SaaS. They're new school in the sense of, okay, one's free. So I'm a big fan of freemium. I wasn't always. Um, to do it later in your stage, like two years in, don't do it right away unless you have a network effect or something that's really important for that because it just provides a lot of noise in the early days. But Slack basically is free and they are keeping you free until you're so big on the platform, typically 10 to 15 users, that you're annoyed by the 10,000 search limit, which is how they limit it. You can only search 10,000 messages. And then all of a sudden, it's like you're, you don't, you're not a $10 user, you're like a $150 user right out of the gate right? Which is great. Three-figure MRR, touchlessly, amazing, right? And then what they do is each of their tiers is set up so that you naturally want or need the things on that tier. So their first paid tier, you get the unlimited search history. I think not quite unlimited, but a lot of integrations. Um, you pay on a user basis and you get everything, right? Then as soon as you hit like 150 plus people at your company, you have a COO, CFO probably, and you're going to need like all the compliance features, right? Your CEOs are going to be like, yeah, we need all these lawyers, always win, all these other things. So then you jump up to that tier and you're totally happy with it, right? So this is known as like pull pricing. It's basically like you're already moving up. We're pulling you up and you're happy to be there. We're not like pushing you up. And so that's a really good example. Um, the other good example that I would look at um, is Square. Uh, so, you know, more, yeah, they are B2B and I, I won't speak to their like prosumerness, but I'll speak more towards their, um, their strategy. Square basically said, we are going to get all of these people on this very commoditized product and we're going to cut out a lot of the costs previously. It's a great way. So they have this moat. It's almost like a free product. It's not free because they have to cover some costs and they make some profit off that. But what they said is we have this, we have this moat now or this group of people and now we're going to sell them 14 different products. <laughs> so they have 14 different add-ons. Now, what's funny is the add-ons aren't like no one would need all 14, right? So if you have a, a physical store, you want the POS add-on, uh, the POS system, and you also want maybe the like clocking in and clocking out for employees that they sell. And then if you're a food truck, you just want the like swipe and then maybe you want the field management. I don't know what all the 14 products are, but that's an interesting model because I think these are the two models that ultimately all of SaaS is going to converge around with some, some you know, kind of, uh, you know, little quirks here and there. Um, and add-ons, one of the most underutilized pieces of pricing. And then that value metric are, is huge, but also notice how both of these companies they have used basically a core competency right on top of their distribution strategy. So uh, payments, core competency, distribution, payments, right? 
messaging, Slack, all these things, the free part of their distribution strategy, get as many people in as possible. So yeah, that's the thing to kind of think about. Um, yeah, that's, 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 those are the two yeah. that I always recommend in B2B. I love those two. Square, I haven't dug into. Slack, I have a little bit. Their, their product-led growth strategy is you know, one of the, the better uh, applications of that. Question. So you mentioned uh, add-ons. This is a crazy one. This just came to me. But uh, a company like Privy, another Boston-based company, I'm sure you know these guys. They've got, they've got add-ons that also have value-based metrics. Is that becoming too complicated? Because, okay. You don't think you're just, I, I love the opportunity when you look at it on like a spreadsheet, but it also scares me of like my customer is just going to be like, what the hell is going on here every, you know, every time I add something. From my understanding, their add-ons, it, they're less add-on. Yeah, they're less add-ons. They're, they're products. They're separate products. So this is a little bit different. So an add-on is more like, um, uh, well, I guess I'm to back up a second. Square is Square has add-ons and cross-sells, right? So I think that's like what I pay for. An add-on might be um, uh, I add the international plan to my processing, right? A cross-sell is the POS system, right? So this is a little bit of a distinction. Both of these are really good for expansion revenue, but you know some other examples of add-ons like priority support that would be like an add-on, um, and you know there's a number of others. I, I think that what Privy is doing is these are separate products. Now, these products are super complementary, right? Um, which is awesome, right? And then all of a sudden, they have like a bundle for startups. They have a bunch of other things. I'm looking at the pricing right now. Um, and so this is great because I might come in and buy Privy email because I don't have SMS or text right now. Or I might buy text because I'm very text-based. Or I might buy both, right? And so this is more of a product suite. Um, rather than just in a pure add-on strategy. And so I think what they're doing is totally fine. I think if I were to sell you priority support for ProfitWell and then somehow I charged you based on the amount of calls you made me take, that would be weird, right? Yeah. So there is a line, but I don't think it's I don't think it's just the fact that they have multiple SKUs with um with uh metrics that scale. All right, good. Good to know. I I uh I'm intrigued by their pricing model. I spent a lot of time I, I love those guys. Uh we've had Ben on the podcast. He's he's great. Um, yeah. this has been awesome. I've learned a ton. So I'm also just picking your brain for free here, but, uh, it's a strategy of starting a yeah. podcast, which is why you do it. Um, there's a uh, last question. We ask every guest two books, every SaaS founder should pick up and read, or, you know, Hey, it could be a resource that they could go use to, to start to expand upon uh, the strategies we talked about today. A book I read at least twice a year, uh, high output management by Andy Grove. Um, the first chapter is brutal. Uh, it's like, oh my gosh, is this going to pick up? Um, it's a, it, it, he needs to set that chapter for the rest of the book to make sense. So the first time I ever read it, and I've read it probably a dozen times at this point, um, I ended up um, like stopping because I was like, this is so dense. Um, but it actually is really good. And so it's just a really good book for breaking down management and operations. Um, so Andy Grove was the former head of Intel. Um, he's passed away since, but he he's just really good. Um, there's, there is an interesting thing where if you pick up the book in the preface, he says, oh, there's two new things that have happened since um, I published this book, the first edition of this book. The first one is like about processors and chips and stuff. The other one is... Uh, email has now existed. Like, so it was written before email, <laughs> basically, and he did update right. some things. 
Um, but it's still super powerful because it's just such a nice, dense fundamentals um, about operations and management. And then a second book, I'm a big fan and we talk a lot. We make every new hire read the book Powerful by Patty McCord. Um, it's uh, basically on the Netflix culture and read Hastings' uh, new book on, uh, I think it's uh, No Rules Rules um, is the new book. I think I think Patty's is a better introduction to it. Uh, Reads is like a good kind of like supplement or sequel to it, but we make every new hire read um, uh, Patty's book. And and the basic idea is, and this is what we believe at ProfitWell is like you treat everyone like adults. And I, I know that's like not a hard thing to disagree with, but a lot of companies, they they infantilize um, their their teams, right? Like, I need to tell you what to do. I need to tell you when to work. I need to tell you what to do, like these types of things. And 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 it's it's something that's baked into us. Um, you know, if we've ever had a corporate job or even in school, is like it's very much obey, right? Like don't think for yourself. And the premise is, is like, no, you have power. Like you have agency, you have power, like you're, you know, a freaking adult. Like get the work done, focus on the outcomes. And, you know, if you want to work certain hours, if you need to take a certain time off, all these other things, go do it. Right. And and that's like a big thing. Um they talk about. And so we we really lean into that. And it, it causes some trouble because I think there's some counterintuitive things in there um, that uh, people worry about the what if the 1% thing happens or stuff like that. And it's like, well, the 1% thing doesn't happen. And that's why you always have like an out with like people ops and these types of things. But we should design the culture around the 99.9% of things that happen. And, and most people, they you know, HR, t- t- sorry, you're, you're getting me on a talk on HR. No, I love this. This is good. Yeah, HR and people ops. It was it's it's a it's a um, the original concept of, re- of of people ops. It's a relic of the industrial movement. Basically, um, you had you know because factories were treating people terribly, you know, and and they rightfully got you know kind of put to task by the government. All of a sudden, there's all these regulations, right? OSHA, you know, all these other things that happen, and so we needed someone to manage all that. So HR became a protect you know, kind of function, not a like supplement or drive or innovate function, right? And so over the years, that's just why everyone kind of hates HR sometimes, or at least there's all these memes or, you know, jokes about HR is because it was never looked at as like, how do we, um, you know, push the company forward? It was always looked at, at least in aggregate. And there are many amazing people ops and, and HR people out there and they have been for a long time, but it was never looked at. It was always looked at as like a CYA, cover your butt, you know, kind of situation. So I think that Patty, what she talked about and what they really fostered at Netflix was, no, like this is, HR is not here to protect you. Yeah. And HR is here to, you know, help in the worst case scenario and help you do your best work um, and help the company get, folks who are high performers who do their best work. And so it, it was It was definitely one of those things where early on, I was always accommodating. I was always like, you know, there would be things that come up and, you know, not wanting to be a jerk. I'd always be like, well, I don't know, like maybe like, especially like if something came up involving, you know, um, you know, someone saying that, oh, this was, you know, uh, this comment was misogynist, right? And you're like, I'm not a woman. I don't know. And it seems like, you know, that comment wasn't like, I, I know things that are clearly misogynist and, and this doesn't seem like one of those things, right? And you would always be accommodating, right? And um, the example I'm referring to, just so people don't think I'm a terrible person and I feel like I have to cover now is we had someone who, uh, um, they got off the phone with a teammate for an external call and uh, a guy, a, a, a gentleman turned to this, this woman and basically said, oh, what was the, what was the name of the girl on the call? who just like joined, what was her name? 
Like it was just as simple as that delivered like that. And this, this woman got very upset because he had called, you know, a grown woman, a girl. Right. And again, <laughs> like, should he have done that? Like, I don't know. Like he should know better. Like, you know, that type of thing. Like, you know, woman's a woman, you know, there's, there's a baggage with the word girl. Right. But was her reaction warranted to go to HR? Initially, I was like, okay, like, okay, like, do I have to send like a message to Slack and all these other things? And it's like, no, like you guys are adults, figure this out. If you can't handle it, the two of you come talk to your manager and they can mediate. If it really, you know, gets all out of control, like then we can involve HR, those types of things. So anyways, I felt I had to explain that. So everyone knew the context, but yeah. I think that's a big thing. You, you want to accommodate and values are not values unless there's trade-offs. You got to have values inside your company and they're not things like, don't steal, have integrity. It's like, yes, those are those are just tickets to the game. They got to be things like, you know, what are the trade-offs? What are you okay with and not okay with at your company? And those those are your values. Love it. No, that's a good, uh, those are two great recommendations we haven't had yet. So we are 30 or 32 recommendations in now. And, and those are two new ones. We've had a couple of repeats. So those are, uh, those are great. I love it. This has been awesome, awesome Patrick. I've learned a ton uh, I'm really excited about what you're doing and what you're building with ProfitWell. I know it's a challenge Thanks, that we are having. Every company I've ever worked for has had and, yeah. and all of our listeners will have. So uh, where can everyone find you to get in touch if there's a, a need or uh, they, they want to learn more about what you're building? Totally. So because this is more of a uh, early stage founder group, I'll give my actual direct email rather than the marketing email. I'm pc at ProfitWell.com. Um, that's my direct email. I'm always up to help. Um, you know, we're all in the trenches. We some of us are a little later, some of us a little earlier, but it's you know still a little bit of a hellscape from time to time, and you know heaven from time to time too. So don't be afraid to reach out. More than happy to help um, on this stuff or anything else that that I can be helpful with. And I'm just on LinkedIn, Patrick Campbell as well. Awesome. Ultimate goal for the podcast now is to get big enough that you start getting so many emails from this episode. <laughs> Let's, <laughs> do it. Change it. Let's do That's it. That's a win for everybody. Patrick, thank you so awesome. much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Absolutely, man. Appreciate it. Hey, have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Zero to a Million podcast brought to you by Unstack, the no-code marketing platform. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next week for more startup insights and strategies.